How does the future look to you? We have an outgoing US president who'd seemingly rather cause a civil war than admit democratic defeat. The General Secretary of the UN is warning of an environmental apocalypse. Our economies are facing deep challenges, while tech companies that already had unprecedented power seem to be gaining even more. I won't even mention Brexit. Yet is all this the sign not of a deterioration of society, but of one in transition? A transition which could actually herald an unprecedented leap forward for humanity. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. This is the thesis I'll be discussing with today's guest on Bridges to the Future, Jamie Arbib. Jamie, welcome to Bridges to the Future. Thanks, Matthew. Jamie, just describe yourself. I know you're the author of this book, Rethinking Humanity, and that's what I want to talk to you about. But how do you describe yourself to other people? I find it difficult, actually. My children never quite know what to say when they're asked. So I've had a career in finance. That's my background. I was an investment analyst. I've worked in clean technology venture capital for a decade or so. But for the last few years, I've been, I co-founded a think tank called Rethink X with a chap called Tony Sieber. And that think tank is really trying to address the problem that we see in mainstream analysis. And that is a failure to understand the processes of change, the complexity of change. You know, Typically, what we do is kind of extrapolate data forwards into the future. You know, and that's fine when a system's in an equilibrium state, when nothing much is changing. But occasionally in history, you get these periods where change happens very fast. And those simple extrapolations are just left wanting. And so, you know, what we do is we look at individual sectors of the economy and society as a whole and try and understand from a essentially a complex systems perspective the processes that drive change and the non-linear nature of change. So we try and understand how fundamentally sectors of the economy might be disrupted and how the effect of those changes cascade across society, you know, affecting every other sector of the economy and the very fabric of our societies. And reading your book, Rethinking Humanity, Jamie, I felt it to be a bit of a roller coaster ride in the sense that there's a sense of exhilarating possibility, but also a sense of huge change and also enormous dangers. So let's start with, I think, um, there's kind of really seems to me two core parts of the thesis. So the first is, is you want us to understand the scale of technological possibility. And by possibility, you don't mean things which might be discovered, but you mean things which are already here and are already being exploited. And I think you talk about five fundamental systems. So can you just, in summary, tell us about these massive technological shifts that are already taking place? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, technological progress is really about our ability to manipulate matter, energy, and information, you know, the foundations of our physical world. So we look at what we call the five foundational sectors, which most directly do that. That's, you know, information, energy, transportation, food, and materials. And if we can understand, you know, how those will be transformed, we can understand how every other sector of the economy will be transformed. And what we see is essentially a convergence of a number of technologies that are opening up extraordinary possibilities. And so these technologies are improving at an exponential rate. We see that in solar PV and batteries and computer processing and so on. Extraordinary improvements. And they're on the cusp of transforming those sectors of the economy and opening up some extraordinary possibilities. In fact, the scale of change is such 
you know, it's not just a kind of one for one substitution. This is not about us buying electric vehicles instead of gasoline cars or buying, you know, novel protein burgers instead of cow burgers. You know, what happens in disruption is not simple substitution, but it's, it's a change in system state. We call it a phase change, where you go from one kind of equilibrium state. If you think of, the, for instance, the transportation industry, it's essentially the same in terms of infrastructure, value chain, business model as it was in Henry Ford's day. Sure, we've had you know, extraordinary technological progress, but the system is the same. You know, what happens as we go through a disruption is that system state shifts fundamentally and everything changes. The business model, the metrics, you know, the value chain, the infrastructure, and it has a, you know, a cascading effect across society. And our belief is that across the economy, we're at a point in time now where those fundamental changes are happening everywhere. So you draw our attention to two examples, the printing press and the internal combustion engine, the car. And I think the point you're wanting to make here is to think of these shifts that are taking place in our transport systems now towards electric cars or autonomous vehicles, for example, and to think of them only as changes in that sector is to completely miss the way in which certain technologies have ramifications beyond society. It would be like saying that the printing press was simply transformative to the kind of scribing and printing industry, or as if as to say that the only impact of the motor car was on the kind of horse and carriage industry. And I think you're wanting to suggest there's a kind of lack of imagination here because we look at the way in which these technologies will affect existing sectors and we don't understand the broader ramifications for the whole of economy and society. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And it really comes about from the way we view the world. So I guess the models of thought that predominate today kind of evolved, you know, out of the scientific revolution. I would describe them as reductionist in nature. So what we do is, we, you know, we look at the world and we break it down to the individual parts. And we, you know, we understand those parts now incredibly well. We understand them down to the subatomic scale. And that's been incredible. That's led to extraordinary progress, you know, in an era of kind of machines, that kind of understanding has catalyzed just the most extraordinary improvement in our living conditions. And that reductionism is kind of reflected across society. You know, we see it in the way we kind of silo, you know, our world viewpoints. So we look at, you know, in academia, we look at individual subjects. In government, we have individual departments and so on. You know, we see it in, in medicine. We see doctors kind of becoming expert on an individual part of the body, but sort of ignoring the interactions and the effect on the whole. And that's really the challenge that we face. We've kind of come to the limit of that way of seeing the world. That way ignores the connections between the pieces. And so when we look at an individual sector of the economy, we, we tend to ignore kind of everything else around it. So, you know, we see car companies today rushing to produce electric vehicles, not realizing that that transformation is actually far more profound. What's really going to transform the transportation sector is a convergence of those electric vehicles with vehicle autonomy, which will catalyze a whole new form of transport, what we kind of describe as, you know, robo taxis, you know, transport as a service where... You know, we have autonomous vehicles riding around, picking us up, taking us where we need to go. And the cost of that will be a fraction of the cost of transportation within the kind of the individual ownership model. And it might even be free in certain instances, in the same way that, you know, Starbucks, for instance, give away free Wi-Fi, try and tempt you in to have a coffee. We might see sort of Starbucks mans on wheels driving around, offering people free transport in return for buying their products. I mean, you have to ask yourself, you know, how do you make money? in an industry where transportation is free. It's a fundamental transformation of the sector. And of course, that then has huge implications on carbon emissions from transportation. 
you know, has huge implications on the structure of our cities. You know, we won't need any parking spaces. You know, the road spaces will be freed up, you know, become far safer. They'll allow micro mobility and so on. And it's these sort of major changes that we see cascading out from one sector of the economy that we think are entirely ignored in most of the analysis we see today. So I want to get into that kind of system impact, but also into the major concern of your book, which is moving towards kind of the second thesis, which is that when you see technological change on this scale, you have to see a similar kind of transformative shift in the kind of social operating model. And if you don't, things can get very, very difficult. But just before we get into that, I knew about electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and I knew about AI. I didn't really know nearly so much around the kind of what you call food as software, the kind of implications, precision, fermentation. That was a bit of your book, which was a bit sci-fi to me. Tell us more about that and how you think that's going to transform food systems and indeed could potentially just end the kind of notion of hunger or a shortage of food. I mean, this is a really interesting disruption because it's a sort of good example of the more fundamental change that's happening to our production system, which we can dive into later on. But I mean, we have a technology called precision fermentation, which is really a, a kind of convergence of, you know, the age old process of fermentation with precision biology. So what we're able to do with that process now is to essentially program microbes to produce any complex organic molecule that we want. So, you know, it's a relatively old technology. Back in the early 80s, we used it to produce insulin. And, you know, it used to take about 50,000 pancreases from pigs and cows to produce a kilogram of insulin. And, you know, we had supply constraints and scientists worked out essentially how to program microbes to produce human insulin. So obviously a better tolerated, better performing product produced without the animal. And it was hugely expensive back then. I think the first kilogram or so cost about a billion dollars. And that's been traveling down this extraordinary cost curve ever since. So by 2000, that price had dropped to about a million dollars and then down to about a hundred dollars today. It's actually well below a hundred dollars now. And so it's opened up new markets as it's gone down that cost curve. So, so we see it used in healthcare, for instance, or in cosmetics and producing you know, human collagen. And we're beginning to see it producing you know, molecules now that are used in food production. What it represents is a fundamentally different production system. So the system we have today is essentially what we call an extraction-based system, where we grow the whole plant and animal, and we break it down into the things we need. So in that model, the easiest things to get to is essentially the meat. You know, we grow the whole animal, we just slice off the meat. But to get to kind of insulin or collagen or whey, you know, have to go through a huge number of processing cycles. And, the, you know, the cow gets, you know, taken off and used in hundreds of different markets. We use all kinds of molecules that come from it and all kinds of things from bone china as an example of one of those products. So in some ways, the most expensive in terms of processing are those single molecules. But what happens with precision fermentation is we turn the whole model on its head. So we produce the single molecules directly and hugely efficiently in comparison. And so the single molecule is the easiest thing to get to. The hardest thing to get to are those things with difficult, complex structures like the meat. And so they're more expensive to produce in this way. But we'll get there eventually, and we're, we're learning how to do that. It's a transformation of the production system from what we call a kind of breakdown extraction model into one that we call a build-up model. And the economics are entirely different. And so that disruption, as it unfolds, will happen from a number of directions. We'll see, you know, first of all, those highly processed parts of the cow replaced. And we'll produce them, you know, at lower cost, more efficiently through precision fermentation. And over time, we'll replace, you know, then the, the sort of minced meat and the, the slightly more complex products. 
And what will happen to the cow is it will go into this kind of essentially this death spiral where you see, you know, increasing costs as you lose processing efficiencies, you lose economies of scale. As essentially, the meat is the last thing to displace. It will have to bear the whole cost of growing the cow. And possibly, as we replace, for instance, leather with new forms of leather production, you know, you'll have to pay to dispose of, say, the hide or parts of the carcass that aren't used, you know, turning essentially an asset into a liability. So we'll see the cost of meat spiraling upwards. And that's kind of how disruption works. You get these virtuous cycles that bring down the cost, increase demand, increase consumer support, regulatory support for the new. And you get this kind of death spiral for the old of increasing costs, decreasing economies of scale and so on. And that drives these very fast disruptions that we see. That's the S-curve of disruption that we talk about in the book. So then that takes us on to this notion of the kind of social operating system, social operating model. That is to say the surround of social norms, laws and regulations, market models, institutions in which this technological development takes place. And your second big argument then, your first big argument being these technologies are truly transformative, not just within one activity or one sector, but across the whole economy. But your second argument is that when you have this scale of technological convergence and change, society, the social operating model, has to change itself And that is, in a sense, what will determine whether or not this period of disruption is one that leads to conflict, inequality, potentially regressive steps for society as it tries to resist all of this change or this kind of great leap forward. And you you want to say to us, this has happened in history before. Now, The book, in a sense, is optimistic. It's certainly optimistic when it talks about the technological possibilities. You talk about an era of freedom, freed from want. But it's not so optimistic about the shift in the social operating system. So you have at the end of the book a whole number of recommendations. But what do you see as being the absolutely critical factors that will determine whether or not our societies are able to adapt to this technological possibility and to herald this age of freedom? Maybe I might start by answering that by talking about what the organizing system is and how it kind of comes to be. And so, you know, we talk about the organizing system being, you know, the models of thought, the belief systems that we have that sort of underpin any civilization. But it's also to do with, you know, the political, social, economic systems that sort of define how we take decisions, how we allocate resources, and so on and so forth. And of course, the governance structures and institutions. And, you know, all of those things are essentially human constructs, right? They're variables, not constants. And they emerge in a kind of evolutionary process. So if you look back in history, you know, what we see is in terms of, you know, human capabilities or societal capabilities, over the years, you know, we use city size as a kind of proxy for societal capabilities going back to the dawn of civilization. And you see these kind of long periods of incremental progress where, where city size doesn't really, you know, increase where the high watermarks are the same. And then you see these sort of brief periods in history where you get this explosion. So a good example is going back to Uruk in Sumer, you know, three and a half thousand years BC, where, you know, maximum city size for millennia had been limited to sort of single digit thousands. And suddenly within a few centuries, 
you know, Uruk exploded to nearly 100,000 people. So it's an order of magnitude increase in size over just a few centuries. And that came about because we had this sort of technological convergence. You know, they developed writing, they developed the wheel, they developed irrigation. You know, domesticated animals used as an energy source to, to pull a plow, which they also invented. But they had to also develop these organizational capabilities to, to allow them to organize and govern society at this much greater scale. And that requires new ways of seeing the world, which obviously helps with technological progress, new ways of organizing society, tax systems and written law, and so on and so forth that allowed them to operate at that greater scale. And those things kind of co-evolved, you know, the organizing system and, and what we term the production system, the, the technological capabilities. And, you know, when you have the right match, you know, those things kind of spread through either conquest or through mimicry. And so our current system is really the result of, you know, a similar progress in Northern Europe a few hundred years ago, where, you know, we have first a printing press, which is, a you know, provides us with a new information system, catalyzed, you know, the scientific revolution. And we have this, this period of time where our societies get transformed, you know, democracy comes in, we, we, we sort of develop the social contract that we have today, where, you know, we get control of our own labor and allow to sell it for capital. You know, we have free market capitalism, you know, thriving. It just turned out that that system was the best system to enable progress, to enable growth, to enable, you know, those who adopted that system essentially to dominate all others. And so you had this kind of co-evolution between the technologies and the organizing system that allowed that process to happen. And we're now at a period in time where we think the same process is going on, that we've got a convergence of technologies that is going to transform our production system, you know, take us to a whole new level of capabilities, or at least that's the promise of it. But we won't be able to manage that new production system through our old industrial era organizing system. And we see the problems already in that, for instance, in the information system. So information out of all the sectors of the economy is the furthest along in this transformation. We've gone from the sort of industrial model of, you know, newspapers and television and book publishing and radio and so on, which were, you know, really centralized industries with, you know, high barriers to entry, high cost. You could easily kind of regulate from the center that the sort of organizing structures of built up around those industries, you, you know, function in that world. But as we come into the new world where it's entirely distributed, where billions of people can create and produce content and share it with each other, you know, at zero cost with no barriers to entry, we're seeing a complete inability to manage that system through our old centralized structures. And, you know, we see, you know, Russian hackers able to kind of affect a US election, the most powerful country in the world. We see, you know, the ability to create misinformation, to create polarization and so on and so forth. We're still trying to manage what we call a kind of creation-based system, this, this entirely distributed, connected, networked system through our old kind of centralized, hierarchical, industrial model. And that's only going to get worse as we see kind of the energy system go down that route and the food production system go down that route to distributed, network connected systems away from these old kind of centralized hierarchical systems that dominated in the industrial age. This is, you know, a recognizable thesis. The way you write about it is very original, very powerful. But this kind of sense of can our institutions and our norms and our systems adapt to this technological possibility is not a new idea. You have a set of recommendations at the back. And when I read them, I thought, well, this is a list of proposals which should be far too radical for any political party to propose. Now, that's not necessarily 
doesn't necessarily destroy your thesis or destroy the possibility of hope because you know change happens in an uneven way it's not as if you're would be seriously advocating that anyone try to implement all of these policies overnight and you know you can see acceleration in policy change just as you can see acceleration in technology but i guess the big question for me is where does power lie in this thesis so if we could go back a couple of hundred years 150 years to the kind of as it were to the discovery in the west of oil and the potential of oil now of course this was just the west there were already oil-based economies in Asia. But when oil was discovered, you could imagine a Jamie Arbib of the time writing something that said, look, we've discovered this amazing thing, oil, and it's under the ground. It's almost free to bring it up. It doesn't really belong to anybody because it's just nature's resource. We can release this oil. It will create a fantastic economy and huge amount of growth. Now, in some ways, of course, that's true. But of course, what possibly this version of you 150 years ago would not have predicted had they been a kind of optimist would be, first of all, the way the oil would become a power resource, a power resource between nations politically and a power resource as it became taken over by hugely powerful corporations who then often worked in cahoots with nations to hold on to their power. And of course, the second thing, that 19th century Jeremy Arby wouldn't have been able to predict would be that technology has unforeseen consequences. And of course, in the case of oil, that unforeseen consequence is climate change. So let's just start with the first part of that power. Ultimately, you want to argue that this technology unleashed can lead to an age of unprecedented freedom. But how do you get there in a society where power is such an incredibly important part of everything that happens and where those who have power have absolutely no intention of giving it up? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great question. I guess it's the problem that every previous civilization has wrestled with. And, you know, the lesson from history is that civilizations collapse. You know, civilizations go through this period of extraordinary progress where you know, they're experimenting, they're adapting, they're essentially trying to solve problems, and everything's kind of up for grabs, you know, including the elements of their organizing system. And you know, the winning system you know, wins out and spreads, and, and pretty soon it becomes, essentially represents the fundamental truths of the age. And you know, things like you know, the divine right of kings, for instance, becomes you know, a fundamental truth rather than a kind of variable, essentially, or a human construct. And those societies just find it impossible to adapt. So, you know, what they do when they, they kind of reach their limits and begin that sort of process of collapse is that they try and patch up their old system. They have this huge baggage of incumbency, these incumbent mindsets and ideas, interests and incentives and so on. I mean, you see it, it's kind of fractal. You see it at, at a sector level in the economy where industries get disrupted by outsiders. Existing industries are doing very well you know, fail to see the possibilities, the scale of change that's coming. It's that baggage of incumbency that prevents them from understanding the true opportunities. That's these upstarts with, you know, essentially the advantage of a clean sheet that come through and disrupt them. So for civilizations, it's the same kind of process. We see civilizations collapse because they've lost adaptability. They've lost their ability to, to question their most fundamental elements. And that's what we're seeing today is that, that, you know, the West and China and those that are doing well out of this current system, 
many elements of our current system are kind of fundamental truths for us. We're just not questioning them. We can't possibly change them at the scale. And this is why we say in the book, we don't think the Chinese or the Americans or, or Europe are going to be able to lead this transition. The, the baggage of incumbency, the power structures that we have, the incumbent interests are just far too strong. We're just not going to be able to, you know, from the center, take the decisions we need to take to enable this new system. So it will come from the edge, as it always does. We'll find cities, maybe within those areas or regions, that can experiment, that do experiment, that are unencumbered by that baggage. And they'll experiment and they'll find the right combinations. And this is the hope that they'll work out the right solutions and their system will then spread and overtake the other ones. And that's really the challenge that we face is, you know, in our current system, because we take, you know, all the elements of our societies today as, as kind of fundamental truths, what we end up doing is, is we try and patch up our system. We kind of double down on what work. That's kind of, you know, what Make America Great is. Or even on the left, some of the Green New Deal and so on. These are essentially attempts to make our current system last a bit longer. And they might be successful in that, in making it last a few more years, but it's an inherently unsustainable system. And I think the challenge we're facing today is that patching up is not good enough. You know, we have to get outside the box of our kind of industrial era mindsets and understand actually there's an entirely new set of possibilities emerging, an entirely new system that's gonna require us to rethink everything. And we're only gonna find out what works through experimentation. We're not going to sit in a room and plan this new system. We're not going to do it from the center and impose these, whatever the right kind of organizational structures are. We need to go through a period of massive decentralization, massive experimentation to understand what works. So, Jamie, I get all of that. And I think had I been working on this book with you and Tony, I think what I would have said is before the chapter at the end with very many recommendations, you know, recommendations which you advocate universal basic income, or at least the exploration of it, for example. So lots of things that I can agree with. But it seems to me that just as you talk about foundational technological change, so when you talk about technology, you don't list, you know, 500 different applications. You talk about these five critical systems. And I think, I think you need to do the same when you think about the future. And in particular, it seems to me that the critical things that will determine the future are our capacity to separate out forces which genuinely increase human freedom from the structures that have accreted around them. And for me, the two that are most obvious here is markets are an incredibly powerful source of progress and of freedom you know, in the marketplace, everybody's pound is worth as much as everybody else's. But markets need to be separated from actually existing capitalism, which is not in its current form a system which is around freedom or liberation or equality, but is often around the concentration of power, effective monopolies, forms of hard and soft corruption. And similarly, that the system of democracy, which is also a system which at its heart is around human liberation and freedom and justice, has got to be separated from the actual existing practice of politics, which is not about those things, but is also around the accretion and the holding of power, exclusion, and also, again, hard and soft forms of corruption. 
it is only if we can liberate markets from actually existing capitalism and we can liberate democracy from actually existing politics that we're likely to be capable of the scale of change that you describe in your book. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. I mean, markets, capitalism, you know, really about how we allocate resources through our society and democracy is really about how we take decisions in our society. And, you know, the models that we've developed, you know, in our industrial era, democracy, free market capitalism, and so on, and they've worked, you know, incredibly well, but they are subject to all kinds of influences that pervert their efficient functioning. So you're right, we do need to transform those. But whether we need to think in terms of, you know, free market capitalism as the longer term solution, or democracy as the longer term solution for taking decisions, I'm not so sure. I think democracy is inherently open to influences of kind of misinformation, of political influence or incumbent influence that can kind of pervert optimal decision making. You know, we are at a point in time where, you know, we have technology in the form of artificial intelligence that might help us in those processes, might help us in allocating resources, might help us in taking optimal decisions. Possibly we can use democracy to choose what we optimize those systems for. So clearly we could design a system you know, in which we could run billions of scenarios, constantly updating them, optimizing for whatever it is that we choose, you know, understanding the trade-offs we want to make, for instance, between, you know, environmental outcomes, social outcomes, so on and so forth. We could have a system that allows us to take far better decisions. The challenge really is, as you say, how do we free those decision-making processes from the kind of perverse influences we see? And my argument would be that we need to harness technology to help us in those processes, that so that's the only real solution. But if we leave it purely in the current kind of human domain, we're inevitably going to go down some dystopian routes. Well, had we more time? Yeah, it's interesting, Jamie, isn't it? In these conversations, you normally reach this kind of point of consensus. We've actually reached a point of profound disagreement. But let's leave it there for our listeners to ponder on. If they want to read Rethinking Humanity, and they should, because it's an incredibly important, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a short book that will really open your mind to the particular point we've reached. If they want to read it, Jamie, how do they get hold of it? So, yeah, it's available for free to download from our website, rethinkx.com. And, you know, if you want to buy a hard copy, it is available from Amazon. But we're a not-for-profit organization, and we're keen that all our research is available for free. So please just visit the website and download it. Great. Well, it's, it's wonderful that the distribution of your ideas exemplifies some of the principles in your book. Jamie Albert, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.